I am not a strong skier. I never have been. And to the chagrin of my former ski bum parents, I probably never will be. I could never get past the whole pizza french fry technique, but that didn't stop me from signing up for the most epic field trip of my high school career. A trip to the tippy top of the Rocky Mountains, in Colorado, in January. See, I grew up in Salt Lake City, where saying you don't ski is like a person from Nashville saying, I don't like music, or a person who is super pale and lives in Key West. It's not unheard of, it's just weird. So despite being a lousy skier, to save face, I thought, yeah, I can totally go on this school field trip and backcountry ski in the mountains of Colorado, no chairlifts, no ski patrol, no snow bunnies or cocoa, just me, some skis, some fresh powder, and a dozen other high school students. The plan is simple. Drive to Colorado, ski up to a yurt at 11,300 feet, once used by the Army's 10th Mountain Division. Stay a few days. We play in the snow and ski around the Continental Divide. But I realized early on that I made a terrible mistake. I suck at this. Because backcountry skiing is the Harvey Keitel of winter sports. Tough, dangerous, and not something you want to just jump into. It is 9am on the last day of the trip. Twelve students, three teachers, and myself head out the yurt door and strap on our skis. But instead of taking a left down the manicured trail that we came up on, we turn right and decide to go up over a mountain and down a valley on the other side. By the time we get to the top and look down the steep, treeless face, it is almost 11, and the temperature is a balmy 7 degrees. Now things get tricky. Going up on skis is easy. Going downhill, for me, is a clumsy and awkward activity. Which is why it takes me four hours to make it down. And, to make matters worse, we still have at least eight more miles of crunchy, unbroken snow to ski through. And we are in the shade of the mountain, so that midday high of 7 degrees drops to negative 20. Before I know it, it is totally dark, and we are spread thin across the trail, and there are long stretches when I am completely alone. While skiing across a clearing, I hear a loud crackle under my left foot. Suddenly my weight shifts and my foot and leg give way to a splash as I break through some ice and dunk my entire leg into icy water. I push back with my pole, and it too gives away and snaps. After a brief struggle, I manage to get myself out. One of my poles is broken, the binding of my ski is mangled, and I have a soaking wet foot exposed to sub-zero temperatures. I collapse in the snow and stare up at the stars and think about how great it would be to take a nap. A face appears above me. It is one of my teachers, Ben Jones. I say, oh hey, I'm just going to take a nap. He takes a deep breath and exhales. I can see the panic and fear all over his face. I am too delirious and too young to fully grasp it at that moment, but we are super close to being dead. And Ben is not about to let some punk kid die on his watch. He looks me square in the face and says, you need to get up. You need to keep moving. He grabs my arm, and even though he is smaller than me, he pulls me up and orders me to march. A little while later, we come across another student collapsed in the snow. She tripped over a log and is clutching her hip in pain. The whole group is here, and we quickly wrap her up in some sleeping bags and take stock of our options. None of us are prepared for this level of exposure. We need a break. We need to get warm. We need to build a fire. But how do you build a fire in four feet of snow? Well, you use your best MacGyver skills, and you build a fire pit with a plastic saucer sled, some pine branches, and the first chapter of George Orwell's 1984. The fire is pitiful, but it is warm, 
and with my feet practically in the flames I manage to melt the icicle that is my left foot. After a few hours, a small group of the experienced skiers head out to find help. Shortly after that, Ben Jones looks around the fire and realizes that if we don't get moving, we won't make it out. The girl who tripped feels better and says she can move, and under the light of a nearly full moon, we move out away from the fire. We stay together at first, but gradually we begin to separate, and before I know it, I am once again alone in the woods. And things get a little fuzzy. See, it's a funny thing that happens when you get hypothermia. First, you feel cold, you shiver, and your teeth chatter. But then you cross this threshold where all of that stops. Sure, your limbs start to ache, but a sense of euphoria washes over you. Your perception of time is distorted and nothing really seems to matter anymore. The voice in your head goes completely silent, and all of your senses become dull. But you feel completely in the moment. I pressed on absentmindedly when a loud snap lurches me out of my stupor. The binding on my left ski has finally failed, and my foot is dangling free. Piece of shit, I yell out as I pick up the ski and hurl it into the dark forest. Poor decision-making is one of the many side effects of hypothermia. I half walk and half ski. Half of my equipment is broken, so I am half a skier. But I'm a terrible skier, so maybe I'm just a quarter. I reach the edge of a small slope and I can see two dark lumps on the trail. When I get closer, I can see that it's two of my friends, Adam and Gina. Adam has fallen over and is completely delirious. I take out my sleeping bag, which still reeks of smoke from the fire, and wrap him up. I collapse next to Gina, fully prepared to give up. But Gina has other plans. She pulls from her bag a cell phone. Usually cell phones are prohibited on these sorts of trips, but Gina was never much for following the rules. She turns it on. No service, of course. But she stands up and begins wandering around the snow with her arm outstretched, trying to get a signal. I watch her for a while and give Adam a slap to make sure he stays awake. And then I hear Gina shout, I have a bar! I think she called her mom. Maybe it was 911. Either way, it didn't really do much good as we weren't entirely sure where we were. Like three shipwrecked sailors giving up so close to shore, we sit in the snow and await our fate. Then, out of the corner of my eye, I see a moving light. Then another. What is that? I ask Gina. She thinks it's the other group coming back to look for us. But then I get a closer look and I can make out faces. I don't recognize any of them. Then I see their coats. It's a search and rescue team. A nice looking man with a beard comes up to us and says something like, You folks lost? He pulls a thermos out of his bag and offers it to us. Here you go. It's some tea my wife made. Drink up. It feels like lava down my throat, but man does it taste good. They strap Adam to a litter. The bearded man gestures toward the dark forest and I follow him to a snowmobile some 400 yards away. I hop on behind him. He revs the engine and we roar through the forest to awaiting ambulances. Total loss for the group that night? Two fingers, two toes, at least 15 pounds, a good deal of peripheral sensation in the limbs, and my desire to ever ski again.